and part of an increasing tendency to infantilize students as preposterously fragile trauma cases waiting to happen, rather than as adults acquiring the experience that will enable them to navigate a rough-and-tumble world. Bonafide harassers ought to be punished, she insists, but in the current climate, the ordinary interpersonal tangles and erotic confusions that pretty much everyone has to deal with at some point in life are being treated the same way as quid pro quo demands for sexual favors in exchange for grades and letters of recommendation. Kipnis's essay, titled Sexual Paranoia Strites Academe, drew ire by challenging our propensity for viewing professors in relationships with students as sexual predators, a view that Kipnis regards as hopelessly reductive. To illustrate her point, Kipnis offered the example of a Northwestern philosophy professor, whom she didn't know and didn't name, at the center of a murky and contested complaint lodged by an undergraduate. He was accused of getting her drunk at an art exhibition and then groping her while they slept fully clothed in his bed. Kipnis made a passing reference to the same professor's involvement with a graduate student whom he claimed he had dated. Two students then made Title IX complaints against Kipnis, arguing that her essay and a tweet constituted retaliation against the students who filed the original charges. As a result, Kipnis herself became the subject of a disturbingly opaque investigation, although she was soon cleared. Then she wrote about that for the Chronicle of Higher Education in an essay called My Title IX Inquisition. Exactly what happened between the philosophy professor and his two students is not all that material to Kipnis's argument. She is more concerned that the new university strictures permit only one view of student-faculty relationships, when in fact, like most human connections, they sprawl across a bewildering spectrum. The official model will of course apply in some cases, but it will also do an injustice in a great many others. In particular, this model invalidates the student's own desire and self-determination. Like a drunk person or a child, a student, by definition, cannot consent to a tryst with a faculty member. As Harvard's policy puts it, even when both parties have consented at the outset to the development of a romantic or sexual relationship between individuals of different university status, it is the person in the position of greater authority who, by virtue of his or her special responsibility and the core educational mission of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, will be held accountable for unprofessional behavior. How did we get to the point of protecting young adults' feelings by denying that their feelings count? Surely desire and love have flared between teachers and their adult students since pedagogy began, but most of it has been invisible. Until recently, Western education at almost every level was a same-sex activity, open mostly to men of the upper classes, so it stands to reason that most student-teacher affairs have been between men, even if they've left few historical records. Except, that is, at the very beginning, in ancient Greece, where, according to Daniel Mendelssohn, who often writes on classical antiquity, there was a literary rhetoric much like the medieval ideal of courtly love, surrounding the relationship between a boy and an older man. It has to do with an archaic custom for the military training of the aristocracy, where you send a young recruit with an older guy out into the hills, he told me. The smitten man, called the Erastes, plies the passive boy student, the Eromenos, with gifts and love poetry, until the boy reluctantly surrenders, although he is not expected to find pleasure in the act. Their coupling is a fair trade, and at least partly an initiation into manhood 
one that can be continued without shame until the boy begins to grow a beard, at which point he may become an Erastes himself. Such affairs weren't an expected or obligatory part of Greek education, but when they occurred, they were viewed not as furtive transgressions, but as a refined custom that enhanced the relationship between generations. This is the tradition that the beautiful, high-born Athenian youth Alcibiades ironically invokes near the end of Plato's Symposium. Alcibiades, bright but wild and notorious for his amorous carryings-on with both genders, is a student and would-be lover of Socrates, who arrives boisterously drunk at a gathering of Socrates and his other pupils. Alcibiades professes to be smitten, astounded and entranced by Socrates' words, but he also warns the other students that Socrates himself only pretends to feel desire in return. All the beauty a man may have is nothing to him. He despises it, the young man.